Rivian tells its staff that EV output may be 24 percent more than originally forecast. And I'll talk with Crane's political columnist Greg Hines about the upcoming battle for mayor. There's been one interesting tactical move already. Ballas has much more money in the bank than Johnson. Uh, I had thought that he might go on TV right away with negative ads and try to define Johnson for voters who don't know him uh, before Johnson could respond. He didn't do that. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Tuesday, March 7th. Your business isn't an afterthought, so why would you settle for a bank that treats you like one? At Wintrust, small business clients are matched with a personal relationship manager who offers customized solutions and prioritizes their needs. And that personal touch works. Last year, Wintrust lent the most to Illinois small businesses through SBA loans, making them the number one SBA lender in the state. Start expecting more from your bank. Learn more at Wintrust.com slash SBA lending. Banking products provided by Wintrust Financial Corporation Banks. Member FDIC, equal housing lender. I'm joined by Crane's political columnist, Greg Hines. Okay, Greg, so the field has narrowed down now to two candidates, Paul Vallis and Brandon Johnson. They're competing in the Chicago mayoral race, and it remains to be seen kind of exactly how it's going to play out. But it certainly seems for sure like it's it's quickly becoming a pretty divisive race. What can you tell me about that? Uh, yeah, it is. Uh, the question is how divisive it's going to be and whether they'll be civil about it and stick to issues or uh, throw a bunch of names. I mean, the fact of the matter is, Brendan Johnson, the county commissioner, is about as far to the left as you can get in local Chicago politics. He's a progressive with a capital P. He's a true believer. He's rolled out a big uh, tax plan uh, to uh, uh, hit the rich that uh, maybe hit some other people uh, that to pay for, he says, what he says are needed investments in the city. On the other side is Paul Vallis, who is uh, certainly a center right by Chicago standards, quite right. He uh, uh, most notably sought and got the endorsement of the police union, the Federation of Police, which is uh, comes with lots of baggage. Paul also, in his past, has some, uh, although he points to his experience running Chicago public schools and serving as the city's budget director, which is real, he also has a habit of showing up places and maybe shooting off his mouth in some ways that he shouldn't have. And uh, uh, I, I guarantee the Johnson folks are going to concentrate on that. So you've got a real divide here uh, to, to start with. And, and uh, given the big problems that face the city, that uh, that's the formula for some exciting times. Yeah, definitely. So what strategies are we already starting to see from the candidates and how might they shift as we roll along to that April runoff? Vallis starts out, at least on paper, ahead. He ran 14 percentage points ahead of Mr. Johnson in the first round. That's really a lot. Uh, on the other hand, uh, he's a uh, a white guy in a mostly minority city, and he's got to broaden his base. Uh, the easier part of it is probably going to be Latinos, who are more culturally conservative than a lot of African-Americans. Johnson, uh, although he's going after every vote, is uh, most definitely going after the black vote. Uh, he was in Selma, Alabama uh, for the uh, march and commemoration of the uh, Bloody Sunday shootings. Uh, over the weekend, he's going to roll out a bunch of endorsements this week uh, from major black uh, black officials. And uh, Tony Preckwick, I understand, is going to be supporting him in a couple of days. The strategy now is going after the votes that went to the other candidates, as well as turning up the turnout a little bit. 
Maury Lightfoot, although she came into her place, she won, uh, I believe, 15 uh, predominantly black wards, not by a lot, but she won them. And people are going to go after those votes. I'm not sure that they're going to, either one really wants Lori Lightfoot to endorse them. She's kind of damaged goods right now, but they each have their own strategies uh, uh, to try to do that. And frankly, Johnson probably needs the African-American vote more than Ballas does. If he doesn't win a, a bulk of it, he's got a problem. So the strategy is, how do you do that? What do you do? What do you not do? There's been one interesting tactical move already. Ballas has much more money in the bank than Johnson. Uh, I had thought that he might go on TV right away with negative ads and try to define Johnson for voters who don't know him uh, before Johnson could respond. He didn't do that. Ballas has decided to uh, uh, play Mr. Nice Guy and stick to his strategy. His strategy is, I'm going to deal with crime, which every poll ever taken uh, shows is the major concern for Chicagoans of all colors, races, neighborhoods, or whatever. I don't know how long that bon hominy is going to last. Uh, the first TV debate between the two of them is this upcoming Wednesday. Uh, and they're certainly going to throw some punches. And after that, maybe they'll turn negative on their media. But so far, they're both sticking to their guts. Yeah, I think that uh, that debate will be a really interesting thing to behold for sure. So let's talk about that funding. We've seen some pretty big business players supporting Vallis and some some CTU support for Johnson. Where else are we seeing the, the main hubs of support that might move the needle for one of them over the other? Um, I think that both of them are going to rely on the money that got them here. Uh, in Vallis's case, as you suggest, it, there is indeed a lot of big big business money, uh, notably uh, folks that in Ken Griffin's empire, he may have moved to Florida, uh, but uh, his company in part is still here and a lot of executives are here. They've donated a lot of money. Uh, Madison Dearborn types have donated a lot of money. And I think you have seen and we'll see a lot more uh, money from charter school proponents because one of the clear distinctions here between these two candidates is whereas Mr. Johnson is a, is a loyal Chicago Teachers Union member, uh, indeed works uh, when he's not a county commissioner as an organizer for them, they vehemently oppose things like charter schools and vouchers that Mr. Valls is, is in favor of. Uh, so you'll see money on both sides of that. Uh, on Mr. Johnson's side, um, I think what you mostly will see now is, is union money, big union money. Uh, and, and it's not going to be from in town because there's so much money in town. It'll be national organizations like uh, the American Federation of Teachers, which is the, the national parent of Chicago Teachers Union, gave uh, 600000 the other day. SEIU will throw in, too. What we don't know yet is where some of the other unions will go, particularly the trade unions, the construction unions, the operating engineers, the plumbers, uh, the pipe fitters, et cetera. They're a little more conservative. They were with Lightfoot, and I think there's been going to be a pretty good behind-the-scenes fight over who gets them and their support. Uh, they can help you in the field, but where they really help you is with their pocketbook. So in your mind, what might a, a city hall administration look like under the two different candidates? How, how would they differ? Probably night and day. I think uh, a Vallis administration in some ways would be a reconstitution of the Richard M. Daly years. Gary Chico, who was his running mate, uh, uh, on the uh, Board of Education when Wallace uh, was the uh, school superintendent, is with him this time. I don't think Gary's going to come back, but people around Gary who worked for, for the mayor might. Uh, Sarah Pang, I, I understand, another big daily name, uh, is with him. There could be some changes, but I think that's where Bells would start with some old veterans who know their hands. Johnson hasn't really detailed uh, who would go into his administration, but I would think they would be mostly people well to the political left, people who 
buy in his vision. If you're the mayor, you have a right to pick people who are going to buy into your vision of investing in Chicago in a way that we haven't done in uh, in in, in uh, impoverished neighborhoods in a very long time. So I would think people with experience in that field would would go. But it's a good question. One of the things uh, I hope to ask them about when uh, they're in, in here for an editorial board is, okay, who's in your kitchen cabinet? Who are you going to pick? Uh, who's going to be your administration? It will be telling because uh, this city right now needs somebody who can uh, who can hit the ground running. Val certainly has a lot of experience at City Hall, uh, so it's probably more incumbent on, on, on Johnson to, to flesh out his team a little bit more. And what do you expect to see from the, the Lightfoot administration as it starts to wrap up and come to a close? A few victory laps. The mayor would just love to cap her tenure with an announcement that the Democratic National Convention is coming to Chicago. That announcement could well come uh, before the uh, April runoff here. They're pretty close. That one kind of depends on what Joe Biden personally wants. It's going to be his call. She'd love that. Um, you may hear a little more about the upcoming NASCAR race, but I think in general, this mayor will try to make the point that, hey, you may not have liked me, but look at some of the stuff I got accomplished. Yeah. Well, lots of things up in the air. Lots of things remain to be seen. All right. Well, thanks so much, Greg. I'm sure we will talk about this uh, again before the April runoff. Appreciate your time today. Indeed. Coming up, United Center concession workers walk off the job in a one-day strike. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Disparities in housing have widened over the last few years due to a conflux of factors, and Chicago is not immune to this national concern. On March 23rd, programming for Cranes Forum Live will include a panel of distinguished leaders to discuss the issues around affordable housing. Speakers include former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick, Chicago Housing Commissioner Marissa Novara, and Jim Cunningham from the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. You won't want to miss this important conversation. Cranes Forum Live will take place on March 23rd at the Old Post Office Building. Visit our website to reserve your seat now. To learn more, visit chicagobusiness.com slash events and look for Cranes Forum Live. This is the Cranes Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Bloomberg reported, citing people familiar with the matter, that Rivian Automotive told workers that it plans to manufacture far more electric vehicles this year than the production target it told investors earlier in the week. Executives for the California-based company, whose manufacturing plant is in downstate normal, told staff at an all-hands meeting on Friday that the plan is to build as many as 62,000 units. Rivian's shares extended their gains after publication of the Bloomberg report, rising as high as 1748 or 11%. The internal estimate is in line with the estimates offered by several analysts prior to Rivian's initial forecast disclosure of 50,000 vehicles on February 28th. Wall Street had anticipated production of just under 63,000 units, according to the average of estimates compiled by Bloomberg. Rivian's stock fell the most in nine months on the target the company disclosed then and remains below where it traded prior to that announcement. Bloomberg noted in reporting that Rivian is seen 
as a front runner in a large pack of pure play EV startups that are chasing market leader Tesla. Rivian's 2021 listing was the sixth biggest in U.S. history, but it stumbled as it tried to ramp up production due to parts shortages and other supply issues. Ultimately, the company ended 2022 falling just short of its own production target of building 25,000 units that year. Crane's Steve Daniels reported that Allstate's new CFO last month collected over a million dollars in the sale of company stock after exercising options that weren't set to expire for years. Jess Merton, elevated to CFO in September last year after running the Northbrook-based insurer's financial products unit, on February 22nd exercised just under 39,000 options, most of which weren't scheduled to expire until 2029, that according to an SEC filing. Daniels noted in report that Merton sold the vast majority of the shares at more than $134, pocketing $1.23 million after satisfying tax obligations. Daniels also noted that the strike price on the options was a little over $92, so waiting to sell them would have been a sign of confidence in the company's future finances. Concerns about the company's capital, which, as just discussed on a recent episode of the podcast, is depleted following a money-losing 2022 and billions spent on stock buybacks in the same year, is clouding the stock's future. Allstate's capital position is at its weakest in years, Daniels also noted. CEO Tom Wilson, however, has repeatedly reassured investors that he has no concerns about capital. The company hiked its shareholder dividend by 5% last month, and Wilson has said it will spend $802 million remaining on its existing stock buyback authorization by the end of the third quarter. Asked directly about capital, Merton said on a February 2nd analyst call, quote, we remain confident in our overall capital position and the capital position of the insurance subsidiaries. Daniels also reported that Allstate's earnings per share in recent years has been bolstered by share repurchases well in excess of stock the company issues each year to reward executives. If Allstate were forced by regulators or pressured by ratings agencies to halt or slow those buybacks, the stock would likely fall significantly more than it has. Daniels further noted that one prominent analyst, Wells Fargo's Elise Greenspan, has a $104 target price on the stock and has called on the company to halt buybacks in order to preserve capital while it restores profitability. The East Coast owners of a Streeterville shopping center that includes both a bowling alley and a movie theater have decided to sell the complex, which could be the biggest downtown retail property to change hands in seven years. Crane's Albie Galoon reported that a joint venture between New York-based Madison Capital and Greenwich, Connecticut-based Wheelock Street Capital has hired Cushman and Wakefield to sell retail at River East, a 251,000-square-foot property at 322 East Illinois Street. Built in 2001, the three-level complex forms the base of a larger development that includes an 18-story Embassy Suites hotel on one end and a 58-story condo tower on another. The River East property is fully leased with major tenants including Lucky Strike, AMC Theaters, and U Chicago Medicine. That according to Michael Marks, executive director in Cushman's Chicago office who spoke with Cranes. Though movie theaters and other entertainment tenants suffered during the pandemic, Marks said AMC has recommitted to River East, extending its lease and launching a major renovation of its space. U Chicago has also expanded in the building, installing a new MRI machine 
machine in its clinic there, and a new restaurant, Monarch and Lion, has leased space in the building formerly occupied by Bellwether, Marks also said. Galoon noted that the property's strong occupancy is definitely a plus, but it's unclear how much it would fetch in a sale. Big downtown retail properties like River East don't sell very often. In fact, the last time one its size sold was in 2016, when Madison Capital and Wheelock bought that very property for $94 million. The two firms were counting on cashing out for a big profit in 2019 when they put the property on the market. They were seeking a price of $120 million, but the property didn't trade. Cranes Corley J reported that concession workers at the United Center walked off the job on Monday for a one-day strike. The move comes during the middle of the Chicago Bulls season and days ahead of the Big Ten tournament set to take place at the Westside Arena. The workers told Cranes they planned to picket outside the United Center until 5.30 p.m. Monday during a scheduled Bulls home game against the Indiana Pacers at 2.30 p.m. Tawanda Murray, who has worked concessions for employer Levy Restaurants at the United Center for 28 years, said in a statement to Cranes that she and the other workers were striking, quote, in hopes that the company will finally realize our worth and come to the table to negotiate in good faith and stop their unlawful behavior toward us. The workers are represented by Unite Here Local One, which includes more than 16,000 members in Chicago. They allege federal, state, and local labor law violations against Chicago-based Levy and parent company UK-based Compass Group, which employs more than 700 hospitality workers at the United Center. Jane noted in reporting that the workers authorized a strike vote in February, when 98% voted in favor of walking off the job to demand wage increases tied to inflation, health insurance for all workers, and pension plans. The last negotiation discussion happened on February 16th. Jay also noted in reporting that the strike authorization was the first to occur at the Westside venue. Levy said in a statement, quote, We cannot understand how a significant package of health benefits and enhanced wages that is substantially more than double the previous contract has not been brought by union leadership to its membership for a vote. Jay reported that Levy said it's offering benefits such as wage increases of 4 to $5 an hour, minimum hourly pay of $28 for tip-guaranteed positions, a new pension plan, and a new health care program that allows workers to bundle hours worked at various concessions facilities, including the United Center, Wrigley Field, and Guaranteed Rate Field. According to a union representative, concession workers make an hourly wage of $11.33 per hour up to the mid-20s as of now. Jay also noted in reporting that in a letter sent to workers last month, Levy said it would have temporary workers and possibly supervisors pitch in to maintain its concession operations during any walkout. The concession workers said they're prepared to extend picketing if what was described as stagnant talks continue. The next negotiation session is scheduled for early this week. Levy Restaurants runs food and beverage offerings at more than 250 venues, Jay also noted, including the aforementioned Guaranteed Rate Field and Wrigley Field, as well as at events such as the Kentucky Derby and Coachella Valley Music and Arts Festival. That's Crane's Daily just for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's political columnist, Greg Hines. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios.
I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.